The song we have just sung, our Father, is fitting as we prepare to hear the Word of God. It's a reminder of your provision for us and revelation to us of yourself in creation. How we look around us at all things created, the seas, the stars, the planets, the circular movement of the earth, each time, each day, one full revolution, and then its planetary journey around the sun on an annual basis. And we see the majesty of your glory and power and might that creates things so powerful with, as it were, as Psalm 8 tells us, just a flick of the fingers. It was nothing to strain your omnipotent power. And Father, we also see your majesty not only in creation, but in your word. As the song says, your matchless wisdom, your paths of righteousness, the word that guides us, the spirit that uses the word to teach us, guide and train, the word that reveals the mystery of the cross so that Fools might be shamed and Christ glorified as these fools come to an end of themselves and lean on Christ for salvation. And so, Father, as we have sung in this song and now we come to this word, we also ask that you would grant us wisdom Wisdom to understand what has been revealed and wisdom to know how to live what has been revealed to us. As we have already prayed this day and have prayed countless times before, that we would be transformed by this word. Would you renew us? Would you rejuvenate us? Would you give us passion and delight in you by this word that is heard this day? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Puritan John Rogers was martyred under Queen Mary in 1555. John Rogers was a lover of the Word of God. On one given Sunday, he, before his martyrdom, obviously, petitioned his people to not neglect the reading of the Word of God and not neglect attention to the Word of God. And in so doing, he imagined for them what God might say to them for their inattention to the Word of God. God might say this, Rogers said, I have trusted you so long with my Bible. It lies in some houses all covered with dust and cobwebs. You care not to listen to it. Do you use my Bible so? Well, you shall have my Bible no longer. And Rogers at that point in the sermon picked up his Bible and began to walk off the stage with the Bible as if God were removing the scriptures 
from the lives of his people. And then he stopped and felt his knees and began to petition God as if for the people, saying this, Lord, whatever thou dost to us, take not thy Bible from us. Kill our children, burn our houses, destroy our goods, only spare us thy Bible. Take not away thy Bible. In a world in which the Bible is so readily available to us, it is easy to become complacent and lazy with the Scriptures. Like you, I probably have more copies of the Bible than I know to count. I have over 20 hard copies in my office. I counted this morning. Within reach at the desk where I studied, I had nine or ten copies. I probably have a dozen or more in addition to that at my house. On this iPad and my iPhone, I probably have hundreds of copies of the Scriptures, most of which I can't read because they're other languages. But I've got them. And it's easy to become complacent. We're just surrounded by it. We make resolutions at the beginning of every year. This year, it's going to be different. This is going to be the year when I take in the Scriptures and I really give attention to the reading of the Word of God and meditating on it and memorizing us. And I try to help us with that every year. I try to help my own soul and my own heart with that every year. And so at the beginning of every year and in the middle of every year, we take some time to look at one stanza from Psalm 119. This was a goal of mine years ago was just do one at a time. And I figured at some point we did that for a few years, four or five years. And I I figured out if we keep up at this pace, I'm going to be like 69 before we ever get done. I need to pick up the pace. So now, not just once a year, but twice a year, we look at Psalm 119, and we have, after this morning, four stanzas left. The end is in sight. This morning, I want to consider with you the letter Tzade, beginning in verse 137. You remember Psalm 119 is an acrostic. So each stanza is eight verses, eight lines, and each of the lines in that in a given stanza begins with the successive letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So it's an acrostic to help the readers and singers to remember the Word of God. So each line in this stanza begins with the word tzade, or with the letter tzade. In these verses, the writer is reminding us of the righteousness of God. It's uh, one of the key words for God's righteousness begins with that letter. And so we find the word righteous or righteousness repeated throughout this stanza. And he relates the righteousness of God to the righteousness of his word in all of our hard circumstances. In the difficulties of our days, God and God's word stand righteous. I summarize it this way. God is right. And speaks right in all our quote unquote wrong circumstances. And all the things that seem wrong, and all the things that are hard, all the things that are burdensome, God is right. He is doing right, and He is speaking rightly for your circumstance. 
in this stanza, we will find that the psalmist makes three statements about God's righteous word. Three statements about God's righteous word. The first of them is given in verse 137, and it focuses on God's righteous nature, the righteous nature of God and his word. And what we find in the beginning of verse 137 is that God is, what God is, is righteous. God himself is righteous. So notice what the psalmist says, 137, righteous are you. And when the psalmist says that God is righteous, he means that God does what is right. He never does anything that is wrong. He never does anything that is immoral. He never does anything that is unjust. He never does anything that is unfair. He can only do what is right. And this is repeated throughout not only the scriptures, but even this psalm, verse 40. Behold, I long for your, for your precepts. Revive me through your righteousness. It is your righteousness that gives life. You always do that which is right and is good for us. And so he says, righteous are you. But he doesn't mean when he says righteous are you only that God does what is righteous. Notice he says, you are righteous. Your nature is righteous. Your being is righteous. You are righteous in your essence. Righteousness is woven into the very fabric of who God is. I like what John Piper says. God's righteousness is essentially his unswerving allegiance to his own name and his own glory. God is righteous to the degree that he upholds and displays the honor of his name. He is righteous when he values what is most valuable and what is most valuable is his own glory. Therefore, God's justice, his righteousness, consists most fundamentally in doing what is consistent with the esteem and demonstration of his name that is his glory. God would be unrighteous if he did not uphold and display his glory as infinitely valuable. God in his being is wholly righteous and committed to the demonstration of that righteousness and everything that he does demonstrates the fullness or something of his righteousness. And notice that the psalmist not only says, righteous are you, but then he addresses him by name, O Lord. The word Lord here is his covenantal name with Israel, Yahweh. It is the name by which he reveals himself to Moses. It is the name by which he makes his covenant. It is the name that reveals that he is loyal in his covenant to his people. He is dependable. He is faithful. He will do what he has promised. And in saying you are righteous, he is saying you're righteous. And by saying, oh, Lord, he is emphasizing that righteousness. You cannot do anything that is apart from your revealed nature. You are righteous in nature and you are righteous in name. This righteousness of God will become a theme of this stanza. We see it already in verse 137. We'll see it in verse 138. You have commanded your testimonies in 
righteousness. We see it in verse 142. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness. And when we think about the righteousness of God, we've already talked about the fact that that righteousness is a revelation of God's nature. It is an upholding of His glory and His majesty. That righteousness also means that He cannot be accused of doing anything that is wrong. So in, in uh, Job 34, verse 10, Elihu notes, Therefore, listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do wickedness and from the Almighty to do wrong. For he pays a man according to his work and makes him find it according to his way. Surely God will not act wickedly and the Almighty will not pervert justice. God in his righteousness is incapable of doing anything that is wrong. That also means that God is fully just in his condemnation of the wicked. So he cannot do anything that is wrong. And when he condemns the wicked, he is righteous and just. Psalm 11, verse 6. Upon the wicked, he will rain snares, fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. And so out of the righteousness that God loves, he condemns sinners for their sin. But his righteousness not only condemns sinners, his righteousness is always also a means of manifesting grace and patience to those who are needy and suffering. Psalm 119, excuse me, 116, verse 5. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our Lord is compassionate. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low and he saved me. So it is in his righteousness as it overflows that he cares for, preserves, is gracious to and patient with those who are needing, needy and suffering. And as we have found out repeatedly in the book of Romans, as we have made our way through that book, the righteousness of God is the means by which he imputes or accounts to sinners that righteousness. So he can be both just And justifier at the same time. He can be just and righteous and fair. And at the same time declare righteous those who are not righteous on the basis of Jesus Christ. Brothers, when we're in troubling situations, one of the temptations that we face is to say something like, Will they do what is right? Will the repairman actually fix what he promises to fix and he will he do it in an appropriate manner in an appropriate time frame and will he do it equitably will he charge you a fair price will the doctor do the right thing in performing the surgery will he get enough sleep the night before and not be hung over when he provides the surgery that's a big question you, you, want, you want somebody that is clear-minded and even-handed when he's cutting on you. Where your children make wise decisions when they go to college. Will your friend respond graciously to your confession of sin? Will people do what is right? 
Brothers, with God, you never have to ask that question. Whatever He does is always right. Because that's His nature. He can't do anything but what is right. You never have to fear Him. He will always do what is right. There's a second aspect to His nature that we want to see in these verses, and that is that what God says is righteous. What God says is righteous. He is righteous, and what He says is righteous. Notice verse 137. And upright are your judgments. Upright are your judgments. His judgments, that is... The decisions and the evaluations he makes about our circumstances, his consideration of where we are, his determination of us is upright, stands up tall and straight. It's honest. There's nothing crooked. There's nothing perverse. There's nothing twisted in what God says. In fact, This is a repeated theme in this psalm. Look at all the different ways he says that. God's word is upright. His judgments are upright. Verse 137. Notice verse 138. You have commanded your testimonies in righteousness. So his his testimonies are righteous. They are faithful. Verse 138. They're trustworthy. They're pure. In verse 140. That is, they are tested. They are everlasting in verse 142. They are true in verse 142. All the way through this stanza, he's wanting us to see, you can trust what God says. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but you can trust it. God's speech and God's declarations are always right and always flow out of his righteous nature. So notice verse 138. Having said, upright are your judgments, he says in verse 138, you have commanded your testimonies in righteousness. His testimonies. Uh, His testimonies are his standards, his warnings, his testimony to what is right and what is wrong. His witness stand, if you will, about life and circumstances. His testimonies are commanded. They are ordered they are decreed as an expression of his righteousness his commands aren't random his commands always reflect his righteous nature if he has commanded it if he has said it we know it's not just something that on a whim he has said well let's do this no it is flowing out of His righteousness that will lead to His glory and our good. It's always good for us. Further, notice verse 138. His commandments, the the things that He commands, His testimonies that come to us out of righteousness also come to us in exceeding faithfulness. His commands are an expression of of his faithfulness. We've seen this before. Verse 86. All your commandments are faithful. Verse 90. Your faithfulness continues throughout all generations. Now think about this for just a minute. If God's commands 
are faithful, can they ever be wrong or can they ever fail? No, I see one person shaking her head. She gets the star for the day. Can God's commands ever fail? No. They're faithful. By definition, to be faithful means they can't ever be unfaithful or contrary to what is faithful. But notice what he says. It would have been perfectly acceptable to say, your testimonies come to us in righteousness and faithfulness. But he he doesn't say that. He says, in exceeding faithfulness. By definition, they can't be anything more than faithful. They're already faithful. They can't be anything less than. But he wants us to understand the weight of his faithfulness. There can never be any deviation from his faithfulness. So he adds the word exceeding, the adverb exceeding. It's strong. There is unsurpassed strength to his faithfulness. He is, he is able to always be faithful. And everything he says is faithful. If you sign a contract to buy a piece of property or make an agreement with someone, you kind of wonder, um, did something slip the lawyer's mind? And they say, well, read over it if you want, right? So it's like 42 pages of things that you don't have any comprehension of. And so what do you do? You say, well, can I have this for a day? And you take it home and you give it to your lawyer and you hope he doesn't miss anything out of it, right? If you read a biography, you wonder... Did he really do his research? Is he really getting this right? Is he fairly interpreting history? And does he really understand what was going on? If if you listen to a sermon, you might wonder, did the preacher really do the work? That's been a topic of some discussion on the Internet in the last couple of weeks. Is the preacher stealing sermons or using sermons that other people have written for him? When you open this book, You never have to wonder, is it faithful to the truth? It's always faithful. It's unwavering. God's God's done His work. You can trust it. It's dependable. It's true. Because God is right and speaks rightly, what will we do with this word? That's the second thing that the psalmist says. He tells us a righteous response to God's righteous word. What will we do with this word? Verse 139, we will stand for God's word. 139 tells us that the psalmist has adversaries. Um, This psalm is all about the word of God, the power of the word of God, the authority of the word of God, the effect of the word of God, the delight in the word of God. If there is a secondary theme to this psalm, it is suffering. And the psalmist repeatedly reminds us that he has adversaries. He has enemies. We don't know what he's thinking about in particular in this verse. uh, But we do know from the rest of the psalm that he has been persecuted. He has been troubled. Frequently his trouble is because he has been defending and standing for the truth of God. And he is acting contrary to those who are in the world, even those who are fellow Jews, fellow worshipers with him at the temple or at the tabernacle, depending where they are. And he's suffering. Here, 
he points out what his adversaries, his enemies who have oppressed him are doing. My adversaries, verse 139, have forgotten your words. It is not infrequent that Regine will call me um, before I come home and she'll say, hey, on the way home, can you pick up some bananas? And oh, while you're there, can you also get this and can you also get that? If it's more than two, I need to write it down. And if I write it down, I need to put it on a sticky note and then run immediately to my car and put it on my dashboard of my car right over the speedometer so that I cannot miss it when I go home. For years, I tried remembering things by, okay, I need this, I need this document for the meeting I'm going to go to. So I will put it on the floor right next to my desk where I can't miss it because I'll have to step on it on my way out. And so I didn't step on it on the way out, but I dutifully stepped over it and kept on going and showed up at the meeting without the file. You know the, you know the drill. That is not what the psalmist is talking about here. It's not that it slipped their mind. It means that they have been intentionally forgetful. They have ignored. They have disregarded They have not cared about the Word of God. They have rejected the Word of God. It's not that, it's not that they just can't remember. It's not that they're getting older and their minds are feeble. It is that their minds are rebellious and their hearts are hardened against God. And it is because of that rebellion that he says at the beginning of verse 139, my zeal has consumed me. He has zeal for the word of God, jealousy, a passionate defense for the word of God that has left him worn out. He's exhausted in defending the truth as adversaries are increasing against him. So, so is his defense of the word of God and of God and his nature. And he is unashamed to defend, but There are so many adversaries and there are so many who are rejecting. It just wears him out. You ever feel like that? You can hardly walk out these doors and do anything without seeing people that are rejecting the word of God. And if you're going to fight every battle, it's just exhausting. If you correct every conversation, it wears you out. Brothers and sisters, that's what it means to be a follower of God. Paul says to Timothy, 1 Timothy 3.15, that the church is the pillar and support of the truth. That's what we do. That's who we are. To follow God is to defend the truth. How do you defend it? Now, the, the psalmist doesn't say. He just says, my zeal has consumed me. I'm, I've been passionate how do you defend the truth of God? I, I love what Spurgeon said. Somebody asked him, how do, you defend the, how do you defend the word of God? He said, defend it. How do you defend a lion? You let it out of its cage. <laughs> There's no defending the word of God. Just let it out of its cage. Just speak the word of God. It's a reminder, don't be hesitant to use the word of God to correct people, to give hope. This is not just something, now. I've got like the six-pound version of the Bible. But it's not something to beat somebody over the head with. It's somebody to put, something to put in their hands and say, Brother, only here will you find hope. 
What you're chasing is empty and futile. And let me show you where life is. Let me show you where hope is. Listen to what David Pallison says about the Bible. The Bible is not a how-to book, a self-help book, or inspirational reading. Scripture does not work like a handbook of abstracted principles, advice, steps, sayings, and anecdotes. Instead, the Word of God reveals God's person, His promises, His ways, and will on the stage and in the story of real human lives. So we take this book to those who are opposed to it and say, let me show you God and how He's enough for your circumstance that you're fighting against. Stand on the Word of God. Defend it. Let it out of its cage. Love God's righteous word. Love God's righteous word. It is folly for enemies of God to ignore the word of God. So 139, they ignore the word of God. They reject the word of God. It's foolishness. Why? 140, because your word is very pure. The word of God is pure. That word that he uses there for pure is the word that we might use in the sense of smelted, right? Your word is smelted. In other words, we've put intense heat on it and all the dross has been removed. And what is left is the pure metal of the word. There's nothing that is of impurity in it. The word of God has been tried and tested by the trials of life, and it is found pure. Now, again, as with faithfulness, if I say something is pure, how pure is it? If I say, I have an ounce of pure gold, how much impurity is in it? Nothing. If... If someone says, I am morally pure, what does he mean? It means that he's not impure in any way. And so the psalmist could simply say, your word is pure. No imperfection, no dross, no chaff, nothing to lead us astray. And again, as he did with faithfulness in 138, Again, he says, it is very pure. It's a reminder that it is, it is purely pure. It is pure to the nth degree. It is infinitely pure. He wants us to see there's nothing wrong in this book. It is unique in its purity. The Word of God, brothers and sisters, it is reliable. It's been tried And it's been tested. And it's right. Where has it been tried and tested? It was tried and tested in the life of Abraham when he's a hundred years old and God says, I'm going to give a a baby to your 90-year-old wife. And Abraham believed God. And it was accounted to him as righteousness. It was right. God's word was true. 
It was faithful. I just finished reading Jeremiah a couple weeks ago. And I don't know how many chapters in, I started seeing something over and over and over. And I marked as many as I could in the Bible that I was reading in. It starts right at the beginning the words of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 1.1, 1, 1, the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were of Anathoth in the land of, Je- of Benjamin. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, verse 3. Now verse 4. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, that phrase or something like that phrase The word of the Lord came. The word of the Lord said. The Lord said is probably repeated in the 52 chapters of Jeremiah hundreds of times. God said, God said, God said, God said. And by the end of the book, Jeremiah says, I trust it. It's reliable. It's faithful. We've mentioned numerous times John chapter 6, verse 68. The people are leaving Jesus. They don't like some of the things he's saying. So Jesus says to the twelve, you don't all want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter answered to him, John six sixty-eight, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. It was tested in the life of Peter. And he said, you have the words of life. It is that same Peter who made that declaration in John 2 or John 6 that says this in his second letter. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Brother, you may not have been tested in every way, but Peter's been tested, and Jeremiah's been tested, and Abraham's been tested, and their lives bear testimony that this Word is pure. It's what you need. And because of that, not only can you trust it, But notice what the psalmist says at the end of verse 138, excuse me, 139, 140. That's what happens when you turn the wrong page in your Bible. Your word is very pure. Therefore, your servant loves it. Two things to notice. He is God's servant. Because God's word is pure and never deviates, he's underneath it. He's submissive to it. He is enslaved to it. The word is his master. And he loves it. Years ago, I put together a little chart. I just read through Psalm 119 two or three times and just made note of all the different ways that the psalmist says that he responds to the Word of God. And this response is one of the most prevalent. 
He loves the word. He embraces it. He's going to say in a minute, he delights in it. Verse 47, I shall delight in your commandments, which I love. 48, I shall lift up my hands to your commandments, which I love. 119, and I am not reading you all of them. You have removed all of the wicked of the earth like dross, therefore I love your testimonies. 127, I love your commandments above gold. Yes, above fine gold. 163, I hate and despise falsehood, but I love your law. Verse 165, those who love your law have great peace and nothing, nothing causes them to stumble. 167, my soul keeps your testimonies and I love them exceedingly. He has, he's saying in essence, I love what you have to say. Tell me what to do in my hard situation, in my burden. What you have to say may be hard, but I love it because I know it leads to the right way. Says Spurgeon, the word of God is most precious to the man who lives most upon it. Is this precious to you? Do you love this book? A third response given to us in verse 141. Remember God's righteous word. Remember. This verse tells us something more of the psalmist's trouble. He says, I am small and despised. This is not self-deprecation. This is not the psalmist saying, nobody likes me, everybody hates me, think I'll go eat some worms. Big, fat, juicy ones, eensy-weensy, squeensy ones, single, see how they wiggle and squirm. That's not where he is. This is the psalmist saying, my enemies hate me. My enemies despise me. They consider me to be small, insignificant, powerless. And in spite of what others think of him, he says, I will not forget your word, your precepts. Remember verse 139? The enemies forget the word of God. They reject the word of God. They rebel against the word of God. He says, not me. They will put pressure on me. My circumstances and my enemies will attempt to push me away from God and His Word. I'm not forgetting it. I'm holding on to it. I'm clinging to it. I do not forget your precepts. His precepts are His particular instructions, His particular edicts, directions about how to live. When suffering, he doesn't move to depression. He doesn't become disconsolate. He doesn't become anxious. He remembers the word of God. There's help for us there. When I'm in difficulty, when I'm struggling, 
The question I need to be asking myself is what is God in this moment calling me to do? What does God say in this circumstance needs to be my response? It's not always comfortable, is it? When tempted to be angry, don't forget God and His commands. When tempted to despair, don't forget God and His commands. When tempted by prosperity, don't forget God and His commands. When tempted by anxiousness, don't forget God and His commands. When tempted by immoral sexual attraction, don't forget God and His commands. When tempted by persecution, don't forget God and His commands. When tempted, don't forget God and His commands. Is that biblical? Well, yeah, the text says that. And our Savior lived it. Luke 4. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone. When tempted, our Savior did not forget the Word of God and His good righteousness. When you're tempted, don't forget Him. Now, I want you to notice something ironic. He doesn't draw it out, but I think it's perhaps implied. The enemies say of Him, you're small, we despise you. That's the first line in 141, right? You're small, but what does He do? He does the big thing of remembering God. They didn't remember God. They didn't remember the most important thing. So they think, oh, you're small. And by his actions, he demonstrates, I'm big, large. Not in his own self, obviously. But in doing that which God has required of him. When you're suffering when you're hurting, when you're tempted, when you're mocked. Remember God. Don't forget His Word. Lastly, last response, delight in God's righteous Word. What do you like? I mean, what's, what's like at the top of the list for you? I've got a few things on my list. Ray Jean. My girls, my son-in-law, my ministry, my job, books, like all kinds of books, digital ones, physical ones, Bible books, theologies, sports, mysteries, fiction, nonfiction, biographies. I love it all. I love solitude in the morning. My Bible, a cup of coffee, and nobody else. And I get a little grouchy when somebody intrudes. What do you like? What's your passion? Can you and I say we delight in the Word of God? The psalmist does. Verse 143, the last line. Your commandments 
are my delight. To delight in something is not only to like it, but it's to pursue it, to long for it, to work for it. You will, you will do everything you can to get it. There was nothing that will stand in your way so that you can attain it. You're consumed with it. That's the psalmist and the Word of God. Absolutely consumed. Why? Verse 142, because your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness. He delights in the Word of God because it comes from the everlasting nature of God. God is always righteous and what he says will always be righteous and always be good for it's it's dependable and because it's dependable he says I want it He delights in it also middle of verse 142 because it's it's the truth your law is truth It is not only true in that it says true things but inherently the law is truth just like god not only says true things it is his nature to be true that is the word of god it is woven into the fabric of this book to be true and truth itself so he delights it why would i want anything else anything else is going to be to deviate from the truth He delights in the in the word verse 133 because trouble and anguish have come upon me. He's under pressure. He's besieged. He's in a hard-pressed situation. In particular it seems again that the pressure's coming from his enemies and they're weighing down on him. And because of that, he says I need to go to the place where I can go to find the truth righteousness and the thing that will satisfy me and that's only in your commandments the commandments of god are straight they're the things that god has a right to command and compel us to do and those commands will not add to his sufferings but they will alleviate his pain and again When he's suffering, he needs God to tell him what to do. And that's why he says I delight in it. I go to it. I want it. When we're suffering, we have temptations to pursue all kinds of delights that will not ultimately satisfy. We might pursue the delight of anger or addictive vices like food and drink. entertainment complaints retribution all those things will fail they'll they'll never give you what you're pursuing but the word of god will always satisfy you it'll never fail you do you delight in this book do you wake up in the morning and say I'm in Luke 3 today. I wonder what God has to say to me today. Is that your longing? Is that your delight? 
One more thing I want you to notice about what the psalmist says about this word. And it is a righteous request from our righteous God. This this stanza is a little bit interesting in that he said a lot in this stanza about what God's word is, but he hasn't asked God for anything. And most of the stanzas, there's an interplay between God's provision and his asking. In fact, we, we see it in the stanza immediately preceding. Verse 132, turn to me. Verse 133, establish my footsteps. Verse 134, redeem me. Verse 135, make your face shine upon your servant. He's asking, help me, help me, help me, help me. All through this stanza, nary a request until the last line. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding. I need to understand. Help me to understand what you're commanding, compelling me to do. He's not saying I need more revelation. He's saying you have revealed enough. Just give me a mind to grasp and a mind to comprehend and transform me by this book. Why does he ask for transformation? Two reasons. One, because the testimonies... I'm sorry, why does he ask for understanding? I said transformation. Why does, he, why does he ask for understanding? Because, 144a, the testimonies are righteous forever. They reflect God's character. And they never deviate. There's nothing wrong in them. So it's natural. If they're not wrong, they're right. I want them. Secondly, he asks for understanding Because he wants to live. Give me understanding that I may live. There's life in the word of God. If you are not a Christian this morning, if you haven't trusted in Christ as your Savior, know that there is no means by which you can make yourself to be right before God. He is a righteous God and he demands you to be perfectly righteous. There can be not one ounce of This isn't a measurement, micro ounce, one gram, microgram. Is a milligram smaller than a microgram? Nothing of unrighteousness in you. We all fail. If you're going to be righteous, you need the righteous God to do something right for you. And he does. By sending Christ to the cross. So that when we trust in Christ, Christ's perfect righteousness gets imputed to us. Brother, that's the only way you'll ever live. You can never live on your own. If you're not a Christian, I appeal to you today. Would you trust Christ to be your righteousness? Secondly, if you're a Christian... There is nothing better that you can do than to trust His righteous word... To help you live. Life is hard. But when you go to this book. It has all the life you need in it. The beginning of this message I told you something about. The Puritan pastor John Rogers. 
and what he said about the scriptures. Now let me tell you what he did about the scriptures. As was true about many leaders in the day in which he lived, Rogers began as a Roman Catholic priest. And at some point early on, he was befriended by William Tyndale, the translator of the English Bible. And under the ministry of William Tyndale, he came to trust in Christ alone for his salvation. Tyndale was working with a man named Miles Coverdale on the translation. And um, about a year after Roger's conversion, Tyndale was imprisoned. And before he was imprisoned, Tyndale gave to Roger's the books of Joshua through Chronicles that he and Coverdale had translated but not yet published and asked him to complete the work. So Rogers went to work on it, put together a copy of the scriptures that Tyndale and Coverdale had done, printed it under the pseudonym Thomas Matthews. King Henry VIII saw it and he validated it had it licensed as the first authorized English translation of the Bible. Henry VIII was soon thereafter followed by Edward VI, and Edward VI was replaced by Queen Mary, and Mary was no friend to Protestants. She was devout in her Roman Catholic faith, and she was against all things Protestant, including the publishing of the Scriptures in English. She had Rogers imprisoned, and for a year there, he was questioned about his views on the Reformation, about communion in particular, and Scripture. And at the end of that year, he was sentenced and condemned to die, to be burned at the stake. John Fox tells the end of his story in his Book of Martyrs. Mr. Woodruff, one of the sheriffs, first came to Mr. Rogers and asked him if he would revoke his abominable doctrine and the evil opinion of the sacrament of the altar. In other words, he was asking, do you give up the memorial view of communion and are you willing to embrace the Roman Catholic view that Christ is in bodily the elements that are distributed? Mr. Rogers answered, that which I have preached I will seal with my blood. Then Mr. Woodruff said, thou art an heretic... And so Rogers was brought the same day, the 4th of February, 1555, by the sheriffs towards Smithfield, saying the psalm, by the way, all the people wonderfully rejoicing at his constancy with great praises and thanks to God for the same. And here in the presence of Mr. Mr. Rochester, comptroller of the Queen's household, Sir Richard Southwell, both the sheriffs and a great number of people, he was burnt to ashes washing his hands in the flame as he was burning. A little before his burning, his pardon was brought, if he would have recanted. But he utterly refused it. He was the first martyr of all the blessed company that suffered in Queen Mary's time, that gave the first adventure upon the fire. His wife and children being eleven in number, ten able to walk and one infant, met him by the way as he went towards Smithfield. The sorrowful sight of his own flesh and blood could do nothing, could, uh, his, the sight of his own flesh and blood could nothing move him but that he constantly and cheerfully 
took his death with wonderful patience in the defense and quarrel of the gospel of Christ. He gave his life for this book. So today, do you stand for this book? Do you love this book? Do you remember this book? Do you delight in this book? Father, thank you for the book you've given us. We acknowledge that we treat it too often, too lightly. Would you change us by this book? And even this morning, would you give us a commitment to adhere to this book because it is righteous and good for us. That's all we ask. Would you give us persistence to adhere and delight in this good book you've given us? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.